Well, welcome. Welcome. I know you've been welcomed multiple times already today, but my name is Cody McMurray. I'm the lead pastor here. And this is an unusual Sunday for us because typically we like to do things very, very simplistically here at Redeemer Church. We don't do big sermon series or anything like that. We just preach through books of the Bible. And so we've been preaching through the Gospel of John ever since the last, last fall, but I wanted to take a brief break so that we can focus in on something that I think is really important. You see, every, every year or every new semester that as we kind of follow the Midwestern State uh, University calendar, we get more of an influx of people, particularly college students, that want to check out what Redeemer Church is all about. And so today what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to lay out a clear understanding of what the church is. A clear understanding through the Bible from what the, the church is. And I'm sure that there's many people in this room that whenever I say the word church, a lot of things pop up in your mind. You think of uh, different worship styles, or you think of different uh, youth ministers and how skinny their jeans actually are, or, or different uh, things like that. You're, you're, you're processing through what type of church is this, what type of vibe is this. And I imagine all the things that immediately pop into your head is a long way away from what the New Testament actually talks about in trying to explain to us what the church actually is. And so right here in, in our passage that Davis read to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to reread it. It says this. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus was most likely a skeptic who Luke, the doctor, who was a, was a contemporary of Saul and some of the other apostles, was writing about. It says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, what's really important in that verse is it says, in my first book, which was the first book that Luke wrote, the Gospel of Luke, and this is the second book that Luke is writing, uh, the book of Acts, he talks about all that Jesus began to do. That's really important because what we see in the Gospel of Luke is this. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, uh, Luke was explaining all that Jesus did in his earthly body. How he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. Died in our place. All of that. And now what he's doing in the book of Acts is he's talking about what he is going to do or what he did through his churchly body. You see the difference there? This is what Jesus began to do, and now this is what he is going to do through the church. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. It says, you are the body of Christ. Talking about the church, you are the body of Christ, and we are all individual members of this church. And so the Greek word for church is a, probably a word that you're familiar with if, you're from, if you've gotten into like the Greek Christianity stuff, right? This is like the number one word that you learn. It's the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Can we all say that? Let's do something. Ekklesia. Repeat after me. Ekklesia. All right. This is actually a breakdown of two words, ek and kaleo. And what ekklesia actually means is an assembly. But kaleo means is the called out ones, and ek means sent out. And so the called out sent ones, ecclesia, whenever it's placed together, uh, is defined this way. It's defined as a group of people called out to assemble around an idea. They're a group of people that are assembling. Why? Because they have a shared common value of a certain idea that they have devoted their lives to. 
And that's what we see in the word ecclesia. The church that Jesus was establishing was a group of people called out around a common conviction that Jesus Christ was Lord, that he actually was the Jewish Messiah, that he was the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that he was God incarnate come in the flesh and dwelt among men. But here's something that, uh, here's a reason why we don't actually think about this very, very thoughtfully, because the word that it is translated into English as church, we get from the Greek word kirk, I think is how you say it. I think that's how you say it. I'm not good at German, so kirk. And you kind of hear church and kirk together. And the, the definition of kirk is an assembly place that you go to have religious services done for you. It's a place that you go to have religious services done for you. And that has filtered its way into the American psyche of whenever we think about church. And so no longer do we see ourselves as a group of people on mission centered around an idea, but typically we see ourselves as a place that go and assemble at a place to have religious services given over to us. And what happened that's really, really important is if you know your history well, the Reformation in the 16th century uh, started a transfer or a shift away from a place that you can have religious services done for you to a place that you understood that you were a part of the church. You were a part of the movement. You were a part of centering your life around an idea. This is who, this is who you were called to be. And there's a guy named William Tyndale who was one of the English-speaking reformers, and he did this. He said, I'm going to do something that the Catholic Church is not willing to do, I'm going to give everyone the Word of God in their own vernacular language. You see, everyone was just uh, submitting to the Latin form of the Bible. But what happened to the common folks is they didn't understand Latin. They just understood a couple of things, and so they went to the place, had religious services done for them, and then they left not knowing anything because that wasn't the language that they actually spoke. And what William Tyndale did is he wrote the very first Geneva Bible, which is written in common English. See, William Tyndale was a gangster, and he didn't care what the repercussions of this thing was. In fact, he had wild repercussions. They burned him at the stake, and while they were burning them, they lifted up his head to try to strangle him to death. He paid grievously for this act, but right before he died, you know what he said? He says, if God spares my life or protects my ministry ere many years, I will cause the boy to try, that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. He pointed it at the people that were condemning him to death, and he said, this is what I'm going to do. And I can honestly say that I'm a product of this. I'm a product of this, uh, that, that, that this answered prayer has come and filtered its way all the way down into my family. My grandpa was a, a cowboy and a, cotton, a poor cotton farmer. And he was also one of the, the, the men that I, that I could go to with any biblical question. You could barely pick up his Bible. It was covered in dirt and filth over years of going through page by page, verse by verse, it almost was falling apart by the end of his life. And yet he was just a common man that was filled with the knowledge of the Word of God. And, this, and I see Tyndale's prayer answered through 
through my poppy. That someone that just drive the plow was now filled up with the words of life. The words of life. Redeemer, does that include you? Do you see yourself as part of a movement or are you, do you think of church as just a place that you come to to have religious services done for you? And what happens whenever churches die all over the world is churches die because they cease being a movement and start being an institution that they just subscribe to and try to belong to. And they stop thinking that this is something that I have a responsibility to carry on and to move forward as the mission of God has been given to every single person that bears the name of Jesus. And we see that laid out in this passage. Jesus gives us his marching orders as he is going forward. He gives us his marching orders right before he ascends into heaven. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, He, being Jesus, said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. You see what he's saying right there, church? This is an important aside. Uh, they, they, they all asked him all these eschatological questions like, hey, when, when's like the kingdom being established and when's all this like going to take place and when are we going to rule and who's in charge of that and like isn't everything about to end and all of this? You know what Jesus says here? He says, why are you worrying about that? Stop worrying about that. I've given you a responsibility to carry out. And right now what's interesting, again, this is an aside, is that the church the church that you can tell is on a steady decline is someone that gets obsessed with the end times. Gets obsessed with the end time. Well, that's the only Bible study. We've been in Revelation for the last 25 years. Churches, you know, I go to this Bible study, and this is all we talk about. Rapture, pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill. What, what mill do we need to subscribe to? And they just talk about that all the time. All the time. But Jesus right here says, hey, we don't need to wonder about these things. Jesus, the Father, has these things fixed out. They're going to happen in history. Know that. Be comforted by that. But instead, focus on verse 8. Verse 8 says this. Jesus speaking again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Witness here means the same thing that witness means in our day and age today. A witness is someone in a court of law that testifies what they have seen and what they have heard. It's no different. It's no different than what we see right now. And Jesus is saying, go and be my witnesses about what you have seen and heard from what I have done in your life through faith in the gospel. Then a couple of verses later, he leaves. He leaves being wrapped up in a cloud and descends into heaven at the right hand of God. And what's funny about this is the apostles have never seen this before, obviously. And so they're marveling and gawking at, at the sight that they're seeing. They look up and, and then all of a sudden two other guys are standing next to him and said, what are you doing? He told you to do something. You are the church. You have a mission. Uh, he told you to go to the ends of the earth. Did you listen to him? That's a big responsibility. You better get after it. And that's, and that's how, and that's how uh, the story goes. And what's crazy about that is you need to pay attention to the ends of the earth. Because I've heard this passage stated a lot of times of wherever you are, that's where Jerusalem is. And wherever Judea is, that's whatever state you're in. And whatever Samaria is, that's whatever country you're in. And then to the ends of the earth is, you'll, you'll worry about that later on in life. 
You need to just worry about those that are around you right now. But listen to where they, and listen to how the apostles actually understood this passage. We, look at us in this room right now. We're in Wichita Falls, Texas. We are the ends of the earth, according to the, these apostles. They've never heard of Texas. They've never heard of the Red River. They've never heard of anything like this. They didn't even know there was a continent, continent on the other side of the Atlantic. We are at the ends right now. But we, don't, but we have more to go. We have more to go. Don't you understand that we are 7,000 miles away from Jerusalem right now, speaking a totally different language, but with the exact same message? that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. So let's observe how the Holy Spirit, let's observe how the Holy Spirit chose to tell the origin story of the church, the origin story of the church. And then let's look at what we're doing as a church and see if it lines up so that we can, as we move forward and as we invite people into our community to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making family members along, right along with us, we know that we are rooted and grounded in Scripture. And the same thing that the apostles heard on that hill whenever they saw Jesus rise up, we can be for sure that everyone in this room is still on that same mission. Amen? Let's go. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, look what it says. Verse 40, it says this. Peter just got done preaching a very long, very short, but powerful, impactful message, and this is what happens. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, which means encourage them, to urge them strongly, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 40, 41, so those who received this word were baptized, and they were added to the day 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And all fell on every soul. What do we learn from this passage? What do we learn from this, uh, the establishment of the church? Number one, I encourage you to write this down. They spoke about the things of Jesus. They spoke about the things of Jesus. This is what... This is what the apostles knew and understood was of first importance. If they were going to actually make disciples that go all the way to the ends of the earth, they couldn't teach people what it meant to follow Jesus just by the life that they were living. They had to actually open up their mouth and be overtly Christian and talk about the things or the good news of the gospel. You see, these disciples, they knew and they understood that Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. He wasn't just another prophet. He wasn't just another prophet that had a couple of good things that uh, established the golden rule or anything like that. He was God himself on a rescue plan to, to save all that would come to him. And he died for us, and that's crazy because you and I are rebellious sinners against him. He said, I don't feel like I'm re rebelling against God. That's because we have blinders to just how deep and dark our sin actually is. You see, every single one of us that sin is actually, that's a sin against a holy God who you were made and I were made to worship him and enjoy him forever. How many days have you gone? Have you gone without worshiping, worshiping him perfectly and enjoying him perfectly? Everyone in this room is in the exact same boat. If we were created for that, we fall short. And what the apostles knew is they understood that Jesus uh, came not because he wanted good people to be a little bit better, but Jesus came 
so that we would understand that we cannot measure up, that there's nothing that we can do to actually save ourselves, that we are far from God, that our sin separates us from God, that there is this gap between us and a holy God, because if anything unholy came into the presence of something that was holy, 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 it would cease to be holy. And so therefore, there's this massive gap. And the apostles communicated to people not, hey, here are the Ten Commandments. This is how you follow it. This is the new Christian moral code. He says, you are dead. You need a rescuer. You need a savior. And I, I, know, I know how that sounds. He's like, man, I, I, we have a lot of people that are all over the country that are in this congregation uh, due to Shepherd Air Force Base. And you might be saying, this is some backwards Texas weirdo preaching that you, you hear about in the movie movies. But I don't know what else to say. I don't know how else to communicate this, that we are lost without him. That we don't just need to start sharing our lunch. We don't just need to start writing down a couple of things that do one nice thing per day. We don't need that. We actually need rescue. The Bible says that we were dead at the bottom of the ocean. And dead people don't save themselves. They don't save themselves. They're dead. They need resurrection. Thankfully, what the apostles taught and what they observed and what they saw is they saw this guy who said, I'm the savior of the world, the rescuer, the king of the universe who loves you and is willing to give my life for you. You know what he said? I will not only die, but I'll also raise from the dead. And whenever they said that, they said, Jesus, we have no idea what you're talking about. And then they stuck him in a tomb, and three days later they saw him face to face. And they stuck their hands in the, uh, in, in the scars of his wrists, and they stuck their hands in the spear side, in their side, and they said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is the gospel that they preached. They preached and they knew that they had to understand that they are saved purely by grace. There's nothing you can do to earn this. There's nothing you can do to, to get in, to curry favor with this God. He is just, he is perfect, but he has made a way. And what the apostles decided to, to communicate to, to us by what they heard from Jesus was this, is that the whole world needs to hear about this Savior. The whole world, and this cannot stay in a corner. We understand that this is for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and it has to go all the way to the ends of the earth. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the apostles believed him. And Peter summarized it best in Acts 4.12, which says, Neither... Is sal uh, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. This was the message that had to get to the ends of the earth. And it, they knew and understood that this God, who is this glorious, had to get his names to the ends of the earth because no one had any hope apart from this message. And so God decided to pour out, to pour out everything through, uh, through all of who he was through the Son so that you and I could understand it. And then, believe it. And whenever you believe it, Redeemer, I don't know how you believe it without speaking about it. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous quote by St. Francis of Assisi. They've never actually proven that he said it. 
Um, but it was kind of the essence of his ministry, which is uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I, I honestly don't know what that means. <laughs> what does that mean? That's like saying, I was like, hey, uh, Samuel, I need, your, I, I need your phone number, and if necessary, use digits. You know, that, his phone number is a series of digits. That's how I receive the information. And the good news of the gospel is just news. We need witnesses to report it. We need witnesses to, to talk about it. We need witnesses to communicate the good news of Jesus. Movements move. Movements move. And those that have believed the message are part of the movement. Are you moving, Redeemer? Are you moving? Let me ask some rather intense questions. Or let me just ask this one question. If, if you're moving, you can answer this question in a really honest way. If, if God decided to answer all of your prayers with a resounding yes this week, how many people would be in the kingdom this week? If, if God answered all the, all the prayers you prayed last week, how many people would be in the kingdom this week due to your prayers? Are, are, are we moving on mission together? And I know for some of us, including myself, that's kind of a stab, right? Stab right in the heart. It's like, oh, man, I don't know how much I advanced the kingdom. A lot of my prayers were just centered around myself. I needed this. I needed my kids to obey. I, I, I needed this, this thing to operate a little bit better in my favor. But if we're going to be part of this movement that God has established almost 2,000 years to date, then we need to be moving. And we need to understand that our calling is to pray and to fast and to beg for God to move in our city, for God to move in your workplace, for God to move in your household, for God to move within your family. Is this something that God, God has convicted you of? Because this is what we see played out in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to the Bible. They devoted themselves to gathering together. And they devoted themselves to move the mission of God forward. And I tell you what. That this world needs the church to be the church more than ever. Right? Don't you agree? Uh, th this world needs the church to be the church more than ever. I think what COVID-19 has done to our society is it has made us more separated than ever before. And by God's grace, we're kind of separated from some of the, um, the crazy that's going on in different states, uh, different states in our union. But I think we're still spending more time online than we ever have before. And because of that, we feel more disconnected than we've actually ever felt before. And so we're controlled by algorithms and comfort more so than we're controlled by the actual word of God and the mission of God. And my hope for this town, my hope for our church is that we mobilize, we mobilize a movement of God that is relentless about bringing people into the family of God, is relentless about proclaiming the good news of God, is relentless about making sure that there is no one safe in this community, no one safe in North Texas, that if you're an earshot of someone that goes to Redeemer Church, you are on God's hit list. I guess we met today because you need to be invited to my church. I guess we met today because God wants, wants me to tell you about the good news of Jesus. That's my hope. Because listen to me, this secular charade is up. 
The, the secular promise that we can uh, have our religious stuff on the weekends or religious stuff in our homes with our household, but then we go to school and it's just a secular environment or we go to work and you leave all that religion talk, that, that is completely up. Carl Truman wrote a, a great book uh, in, in 2020 called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he said this that I thought was really, really interesting. He said, secularism or modernism, this idea that we should be able to uh, get along with everyone, but just don't talk about politics, don't talk about religion, all that stuff. Um, that this is a virus that has worked its way through society until it kills its own host. And I think we're at the end of that. The charade is up. Because what secularism tells us is this. It, it says, hey, right, don't give us any of that religion talk. This is work. This isn't water cooler talk. Uh, you, don't talk you don't talk about God and Jesus and religion. You don't want to be that guy at work. Shut up. Uh, if you want to invite people to your home and do your whole church thing there, you can do that there, but not, not in the workplace. That charade is up because you know what, what is so interesting about our cultural moment is because it is this, is Christians are also criticized more than ever for being hypocrites. And so it's like, stop telling me about Jesus, but you're such a hypocrite. Why aren't you just telling everyone about Jesus, right? That, like, that's, that's our cultural moment is like people are saying, I'm so frustrated that Christians are such hypocrites. If I really believed that I was going to hell, I would tell that person every single day. This is a, an argument that is typical amongst those that um, don't identify as believers in Jesus. I would tell someone every single day because I feel like I'm a good person. And so it, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it on, on one side of the equation, uh, the, the sense of, you know what? You know what? Uh, keep your religion at home. Or please, if you are a follower of Jesus, obviously, wouldn't you tell me every single waking moment of every day? The charade is up. And we should have never fallen for it as the church of God, but we did. And now it's time to take back the reality of what a worldview actually is. Jesus is Lord of all. You know what that means? Jesus is Lord of Twitter. Jesus, right? If Jesus is Lord of all, he's Lord of Twitter. He's Lord of your workplace. He's Lord of your hard marriage. He's Lord of your suffering that you're going through. He is Lord of all. And there is no place that darkness can invade that the light of God doesn't push back very, very quickly whenever he comes in. This is what God has called the church to. We need to stop being so scared that we might, we might have to risk for Jesus. Guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, you will have to risk for him. You will have to. It's, it's, part, it's part of following him. Jesus demands that he is Lord of all. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to be the church? How are we, Redeemer Church, going to commit ourselves to this radical call? How are we going to do this? The primary way that we're going to do it is through our gospel communities. The primary way we're going to do it is through our gospel communities. Why? Because if you want to live this out faithfully, you need a place to do training. You need a place to, to really soak in time. And you also need a place where you have a team that can encourage you and build you up and keep you on the mission moving forward. So you need training, you need time, and you need a team. The three ways that we do this is by expressing and trying to communicate the values that we have as a church. We're asking God to form us into a gospel-centered, disciple-making family. And the way that we are going to train to operate in that as a church is we're going to take 
each value, kind of work it within our gospel communities. And so the first value that we really try to express is family. What does it mean to be a family that loves one another? That means that whenever uh, you're away, we take care of your kids. That means that if you, you complain about not having a date night or you having a hard time, we give you meals. We take care of your kids. We do everything we can to operate as a family, a family of God. And that also means that we uh, build out this family value until we trust each other. I was having a conversation with Brent Holsbury just the other day, and we were talking about, hey, how do we know? How do we know that we have established our family value within our, within our uh, uh, gospel community? You know, what it, uh, you know what we talked about? He says, whenever we're laughing together. <laughs> when are we laughing together? Uh, whenever we get together, do we understand our sense of humor? You see so many people that are in this room that, that might be uh, checking out Redeemer for the first time. You're just like, man, you know, like, I, I, just, I'm, I just came here to try to figure out this, this whole thing. And maybe church was all about uh, me finding a friendship here or there or going deep over here. Really, it's about both. You're going to have people in this church to where you're going to be really deep friends with, and then you're going to have people in this church that you are even deeper with, not through uh, shared values or anything like that, shared sense of humor, but by living on mission together. And that's what, you're, that's what we're called to do. You see, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say you always get to pick your neighbors. He says he, he didn't say that only love your neighbors that also like office quotes like you do. Yeah, uh, only pick your neighbors that are, are really big into uh, college football or, so, or, or, really, or an accountant or something like that. No, you don't get to necessarily pick your neighbors, but God has placed people within your church so that you can live out the one another ethic. To, to where you treat people that are not like you, that don't think like you, act like you, like the same things as you, maybe even vote like you, but you say, I love them because... They are made in the image of God, and they're a part of my church family, and we are, on, we are moving in the same direction together. So therefore, therefore, I'm all in with this person. That's what it means to be uh, part of a family, is to, to, to hitch our wagons together on the same mission until we, said, until we say together as a family, yes, we're re ready to move forward. We're ready to move forward um, to the next value that we want to strongly establish within our communities which is what we call gospel centrality. Everything we do here at Redeemer, from the way that we order and structure our service to, to how we have everyone stand up whenever the word of God is being read, to how we come together and we pray for one another during this time, to how we orchestrate um, even our call to worship and our benediction and our supplication. Everything that we, everything that we do, we try to back with certain um, or certain elements of scripture so that everything we do here is saturated in the word of God. And that's how we want our communities. We want to, uh, our gospel communities to be saturated in the Bible and to understand and to have a shared common language of what does it mean to talk like the people of God. And so we have this training ground that we're creating through our gospel communities that serves both, both as a model and a, 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 in a training ground for disciple-making. And I know that's where I lose you. Disciple-making, man, this whole thing has been about this. And I've never done it. What is it? You know, like what, like what is disciple-making? Disci well, let me say this. 
It starts with those that are far from God and with this dreaded Christian word called evangelism. (laughs) It starts with evangelism and it ends with multiplying, multiplying a person's life until they become a disciple maker themselves. You see, this is a robust system. And you say, I don't know how to do this. Are you in a gospel community? Are you in a gospel community at, at Redeemer? I encourage you to join into one. You say, Cody, how can I join into one? How do I get into one of those things? Next week, we have a thing called Redeemer Basics, which is kind of our on-ramp, on-ramp into our gospel communities. So where you can belong to a community that's living out and expressing our values Come next week and check, check that out. If you are active military in this room and you're just like, man, like, I'm going to be here for 11 more months. I'm going to be here for four more months. We actually have an expedited process for you. You don't have to wait for, sorry, Chris, you don't have to wait for Redeemer Basics. You can just be like, dude, I'm all in. Let's roll. And uh, we'll, have, we'll have a brief meeting and we will uh, move forward so we can Make sure that you are thriving in your relationship with Christ while you're serving here in Wichita Falls. Cool? I know that that was kind of informational, but uh, it brings me back to this. brings me back to this. Whenever we devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings, to the prophets, um, to to, uh, the fellowship, and and to the prayers, what happens is we get on this locomotive of movement to say, movements move, we belong to the movement, and this is what God is doing in and through us. And you might be in this room and you might be saying this. Man, is he really saying this? Filling up the, the workplace with a bunch of jerky Christians that are all stuck up and snobbish and talking about Jesus and saying, saying I'm going to go to hell and all that. Um, have you seen the person of Jesus? Have you, have you ever read anything about him? Yes, they crucified him, but they didn't crucify him for being a jerk. They crucified him because he said, I am God and I'm Lord of everything and you need to bow down and worship, worship me. But he was also the most compassionate, gentle, kind-hearted man that's ever walked the earth. And, and in fact, he embodied the perfection of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what we're calling people to here at Redeemer is to exhibit that, to put Christ on display where you work, live, and play. That is the call. Not to be a jerk, but to be compassionate, to be winsome, to be gentle and lowly, to be actually um, uh, uh, um, faithful to your friends. Or as my good friend, Eb Stewart says, what we have to do as Christians is we have to put friends before our friendships. You get what he's trying to say? We have to put our friends before our friendships. You see, whenever you value a friendship over a friend, you know what will happen? is you will never say anything that is risky. You will, it will constantly be this little little egg that you're trying to uh, um, just hold in your hand and not do anything to ruffle any feathers or, or, or stuff like that. But if you put the friend before the actual friendship, you will enter into hard, good, beautiful conversations about Jesus. Why? Because heaven and hell hang in the balance. Are you with me? Are you with me? We have to value, we have to value friends that we have in our lives over, over our friendships, over our friendships. And so let me just end this way. Let me end with some encouragement that if you're thinking, you know what, this preacher is just a little bit too yelly for me. I'm never coming back. Cool. Like, I mean, this is kind of, 
You work with what you got. This is what I got, all right? I get excited. Um, I'm a pretty nice guy. I do one weird thing. I yell on a stage at people on Sundays, okay? That's, that's, kind of how I, that's kind of my gig. That's how I operate. But listen, listen, let me give you encouragement about what God is doing in the midst of this congregation. If you're considering, this is something that I want to really devote my life to. A year ago, a year ago to this date, we had one gospel community. And today, here at Redeemer Church, we have six with three in the wings about to get started. And so that's a movement. That's a movement. Things are moving here. That's in one year. I thought it was funny that uh, I just went to a pastor's retreat, and they all were talking about, you know, pastors of big churches, small churches, everything in between. And um, the guy that uh, was really a mentor of mine, I was just saying, you know, I, I just don't know how we're, I, I don't really know how to judge church planting. I, I moved here right in the middle of COVID. I don't know if things are going well or things are not going well. Like, I'm excited about um, what I've seen, and this is what I've seen. And he said, Cody, what are you talking about? This is super exciting. He says, by the time that y'all have grown sixfold, he says, I cut um, our membership in half. He says, that's the majority of churches in America right now. They've all been cut in half due to COVID-19. And we have grown sixfold. We've doubled uh, the, the number of kids' classes that we've had since um, this, this time last year. We had two, and now we have four. Every area of Redeemer Church is growing. And I, I don't know what it is, but I know that movements move. And whenever you get serious about the message, that seems to be where the wind of the Holy Spirit tends to blow. And I would invite you to join in and to partner with us. I have a couple of goals that I want to set before this congregation as a way of closing that you can begin to pray about. You see, we're about to enter into a month long of prayer and fasting. And this has been an answered prayer from mine from the very beginning. I met a, a, a man who, um, whose son actually goes to this church, and I mentioned him earlier. His name's Ken Holsberry. And he, when the first time I met him, he said, Cody, I've been praying for you and your church for the last four years. I said, Ken, I didn't know I was coming here four years ago. What do you mean you've been praying for me for the last four years? And he says, I've been praying for a church to be serious about discipleship and disciple making here in Wichita Falls. And so, yes, I've been praying for this church. And you know what he uh, tried to establish is he established a cohort of other pastors who would get serious about the Great Commission taking root in our churches. And so now we have uh, over 10 churches within the community that is spending the month of February, the month of February, uh, praying and fasting for those that are far from God in our sphere of influence. And so we have these packets that you got um, that were passed out to you today that have a list of 15 names of someone that is in Wichita Falls. 15 names that's someone that may be close to God or may not be close to God. And what we're going to do over the course of the next month is we're going to pray and fast on Tuesdays for, for these individuals and beg for God to move. I'll talk a little bit more about that during the announcements, but that is a goal that we are setting. Movements move. And by the, this time next year, I'm, I'm hoping that we have 15 gospel communities, 15 gospel communities. And by the year 2030, my hope, my hope for this congregation is that we have planted three other churches, three other churches and sent out 15 missionaries to unreached people groups, 15 missionaries. You say, Cody, that seems really, really bold. There's like 90 people in this room. 
How are we going to start new churches? How are we going to send out missionaries? And why would we send out our best and our brightest? That doesn't make any sense. Listen, I know. I know it doesn't make any sense, but it seems like whenever the Spirit of God is at work, whenever you send out your best leader, five leaders come to replace that one leader. I've experienced this within our gospel community. We're having to send, this week, I've already had conversations about sending out some of our best leaders, the most fruitful leaders that are all on board with being a gospel-centered, disciple-making family. And listen, that's painful and it's hurtful, but I know that that's how the movement of God moves forward. We send out our best and our brightest to go and live and perpetuate the mission of God forward. So my question is this. Are you an anchor to this vision? Are you an anchor or are you a propeller? Are you ready to move forward with big goals like seeing 4,000 people baptized here in Wichita Falls over the course of our generation by the year 2060? Are, are you committed to seeing us send out so many missionaries with a collective group of other churches that have shared values and shared, shared training so that 100 unreached people groups, I'll talk a little bit more about that here in a little bit, 100 unreached people groups have healthy, vibrant churches within them during our generation. Listen, I don't want to be a part of an institution that comes and has religious services done. I want to be a part of a movement. And if God kills me tomorrow, I don't care. I want the movement of God to continually perpetuate through you. Through you. That is my prayer. And I hope it's yours as well. Let's pray.